You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, it looks so easy on television, but is it really that simple to hire a hitman? We delve into the fascinating journey of McDonald's play places, from their whimsical inception to the unexpected challenges that led to their downfall. Heads or tails? When we flip a coin, we have a 50-50 chance of getting it correct, right? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, if money didn't matter to you, what would you buy or do? Like, like, let's just say you wake up tomorrow, you log into your banking app to look at your bank account, and instead of the like $33 that's probably in there, you have $33 billion. What's something you'd buy? Well, first of all, it's a little bit more than $33, so <laughs> let's just get that out into the public conversation. <laughs> to, to be fair, I, I intended to say the $33.51. Yeah, it's a little closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think it would be among a lot of things. I probably would prioritize like creating my own workout space where I just didn't have to interact with other people, which is always the hard thing about that type of thing. And not even just like a gym, but like an entire trail system that I could run on by myself, like free from other people just in my own space, you know, that I can count on and then pay somebody to groom it and like make sure there's no branches on the trail and things like that. That's not bad. And actually, I think you could probably do that on what I would would buy. So I'd buy an island. (laughs) So like my own island. Seems like an inconvenience though, because you'd have to like get to it. And then like if you want to go to the grocery store or something, or if you just like want to go hang out with friends, you'd have to like fly out of it you, or something you take it yeah because my second purchase would be a jet <laughs> are you flying so, it or is someone else flying no, no, it no, no, like no. are you paying the, the for third lessons? purchase would be the third purchase would be a pilot for the jet <laughs> see this is the, <laughs> the like you're completing the circle like this is why owning an island probably isn't as uh, amazing as it seems it seems like a lot of but work how cool would that be you're just talking to your friends like what do you guys want to do like for you guys want to go on a vacation together this summer everybody's like oh yeah that'd be cool what do you guys want to do like we can go to my island yeah, and then everybody in the side group chat is like, Dave's going to bring up the island again. Oh my gosh, it's so <laughs> annoying when he does that. But trail system and island aside, something you could have said, and I'm really glad you didn't, is that you'd hire a hitman to knock someone off for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I joke all the time, I know you, that I've said this to you, when we talk about people that have a ton of money, I'll say something like, yeah, that guy has so much money, he could pay to have us killed. That's true. You do say that. Yeah, I, I do. But let's just say, Jay, that, that you wanted to, though. Could you? Like the movies and TV shows, they, they, they make it seem sort of easy, right? Somebody knows somebody whose uncle will serve as a hitman for you for a price. The reality, though, which probably won't shock you, is that in real life, it's very, very different. Jay, whether it be John Wick, which really quick, I just watched John Wick 1 through 4 over the last like two weeks. Oh my gosh, so good. Just so good. (laughs) But whether it be John Wick or a character from maybe the hit show The Sopranos, hitmen or assassins are an entertainment staple. But experts in law enforcement agree, murder for hires are extremely difficult to outright impossible, not only to arrange, but to get away with. 
even Robert Baer, a former CIA officer and author, including of a book titled The Perfect Kill, 21 Laws for Assassins, told the New York Times that despite being surrounded by bad guys his entire career, even he wouldn't know where to start. I could not find you a hitman, he told the Times, and I know a lot of murderers. (laughs) And others, like Dennis Kinney, a criminal justice professor at John Jay College, agree. The hitmen of the movies, slick back hair, leather jackets, are nothing more than a myth. Anyone willing to do it for you today is probably the kind of person who couldn't ever possibly pull it off. And Jay, while it's hard to know for sure how many people are killed by hitmen in a year, only about half of all murders in the U.S. are actually solved each year, according to the FBI— Murder-for-hire attempts are believed to almost always fail due to ineptitude and amateurism. There isn't a real efficient, high-quality hit service out there like in the movies. Michael C. Farkas, a defense attorney who has worked as a New York City homicide prosecutor, told the New York Times, when it comes to understanding the type of person who would and possibly could carry out a murder-for-hire, law enforcement officials put them in a few different buckets. First, there are civilians, like a shady friend of a friend or a degenerate family member. Next, there are hitmen who actually work for the real mob, something officials say is dramatically overexposed in Hollywood depictions, by the way. And then there are professional killers employed by government intelligence agencies. And Jay, even this last group is rarely, if ever, successful. Statistics released by the New York State Division of Criminal Justice show that in 2022, seven arrests were made in the state of New York for contract killing. And that was a banner year. It matched the total of the previous five years combined. Still, despite all of this, people keep trying to have other people killed. Typically with a romantic component and almost always motivated by money, we are emotional animals. But I think Robert Baer, the former CIA agent who has studied hitmen extensively, puts it best, Jay. Plots unravel, he says. These things are a tactic of desperation and insanity. You just cannot get away with murder. This is how I know that TV and movies have broken my brain because I still, despite all that information that you just threw at me, I feel like you give me a few hours, like I can make it happen. I can find a guy. You could find a guy. But see, the thing is, typically the guy you'd find would be an undercover agent who would then arrest you. So, Dave, growing up, one of the staples of going to McDonald's was the fact that there probably was a play place in that McDonald's. But today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a play place in a McDonald's. They've kind of fallen by the wayside, and it's for a lot of different reasons that we're going to talk about today. But growing up in the 90s, I know that you probably did experience life in a McDonald's play place. So, if so, uh, what was that like for you? I did. And you know how you have these core memories, Hopefully most of them are positive, but some of them are negative. And I have a very negative core memory that still to this day, as someone closer to 40 than 30, uh, I still think about this from time to time. Uh, so I was a really tall kid. I'm six feet tall. I've been this tall since I was 12. So I just, I, I peaked out. <laughs> you really dominated early. middle school basketball, but unstoppable. none after. <laughs> unstoppable. Then everybody else kept growing and I stayed the same. So I was a really tall 10 year old too. So I, I remember going to a, a play place with my cousins who were younger and you know, shorter and I'm, I'm too tall to be in there, but I'm not too old to be in there. And some person actually approached me as a kid and said, you're too tall. You can't be in there. <laughs> and in it, I, I probably cried and it was, it scarred me, but I still think about that because it was so mean. 
I famously worked at Burger King for a few years in high school. And that was always the job that you wanted was cleaning the play place because you could just get up in those tunnels with a spray bottle and you could just, <laughs> just nod off for about 15 minutes, <laughs> make it seem like the managers thought it took so much longer than it really like, did. Man, Jay is very thorough. <laughs> really? You just he didn't just clean them. every ball in the ball. You pit. just didn't really clean them is what would happen. You just let the bacteria all build up and you'd be up there taking a snooze. Yeah. Sounds about right. Well, Dave, we're going to talk about the, uh, inception of the McDonald's play place, but then we're also going to ask the important question, like what happened to them? Why are they not around anymore? So let's go back to the beginning. In 1972, McDonald's tested their first 4,800-square-foot play place at the Illinois State Fair, of all places. After the test was deemed a massive success, the brand approved the expansion across America. But it was more than a playground. McDonald's aimed to create a fast-food commercial fantasy. McDonald's introduced McDonaldland, a marketing campaign in 1971 that brought Ronald McDonald and his pals to life in a fast-food-themed world. So the play place was meant to tie together with this world and featured all the characters. On top of that, by the end of the decade, McDonald's rolled out its first Happy Meals nationwide, marking a significant shift in their target audience to young consumers. So the first official McDonald's Playland opened in Chula Vista, California, and it was a massive success, increasing business in that store by over 60%. Play places became an integral part of the brand, with McDonald's becoming America's largest playground operator by 1991, boasting 3,000 play places across the country. This coincided with the dawn of Stranger Danger, where stories of child abductions were common on the evening news, and a lot of parents began to see trips to the park as dangerous. Playing at McDonald's was seen as safe and a contained activity, but in some parts of the country, Dave, it was anything but. Despite their popularity, the safety of McDonald's play places was not idealistic as it seemed. Behind the scenes, stories of second-degree burns, infectious bacteria, and injuries were allegedly kept under wraps by McDonald's for years. The metal playlands of the 70s were found to be very dangerous, leading to hundreds of injuries with the infamous Big Mac climber Jungle Gym being the common culprit. In fact, Dave, there are reportedly hundreds of incidents of injuries sustained on McDonald's play places that ranged from concussions to broken bones to skull fractures. But consumers were none the wiser as McDonald's worked diligently behind the scenes to keep this information from the public and quietly began swapping metal with padded plastic. So in 1999, McDonald's faced a public relations nightmare when it had to pay a $4 million fine to the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission for climber-related play place injuries. The once-beloved play places were under scrutiny, and the decline had begun. Fast forward to the 21st century, and McDonald's faced new challenges. Childhood obesity rates were on the rise, and McDonald's became the target, especially after the famous 2004 documentary, Super Size Me, which we all know you starred in, and it examined the health consequences of regular visits to McDonald's. From the 1960s to the 2000s, Dave, childhood obesity rates actually grew by 50%, and McDonald's increasingly became the scapegoat. But the threats weren't just about nutrition. A 2011 study revealed very unsanitary conditions in play places with harmful pathogens like coliform and staph bacteria found. Despite moving indoors and remade in plastic for safety, play places just weren't held to the same cleanliness standards as the rest of the restaurant. Inspections were very rare and stories emerged of trash and even hypodermic needles going unnoticed in the enclosed play areas on the evening news. 
So McDonald's began phasing out play places in response to health concerns and changing consumer preferences. In 2011, the Happy Meal underwent a revamp with smaller portions and more nutritious sides. Ronald McDonald retired from commercials in 2016, and throughout the 2010s, McDonald's redesigned its locations for a sleeker look, often leaving play places behind. The COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 dealt the final death blow, leading to the closure of many remaining play places. As the fast food landscape evolved, McDonald's turned its marketing efforts toward particularly millennials, leaving the nostalgic memories of play places as a relic of the past. The fast food world has undergone some serious changes as of late, too, as delivery apps have replaced much of in-store dining and childhood-focused marketing has gone by the wayside. So today, Dave, as we reflect on the rise and fall of McDonald's play places, we see a story of whimsy turned into cautionary tale. The once beloved playgrounds face challenges of safety and cleanliness and changing consumer tastes. And Dave, as the 90s kids enter their 30s, the sticky tube slides and plastic play areas are a retro part of the brand that may just have to remain in the past. You know, I'm a dad now, so I can navigate myself uh, you know, pretty well around kid systems like you know, playgrounds and, and daycares, things like that. But when you don't have kids, I mean, why would you ever, you're not going to go on a playground per se, unless you're there to like vandalize it. Uh, and so my, when my sister had kids, uh, I was watching them. You know, I wanted to be a fun uncle. So this was, this was a while back. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to take them to Chick-fil-A and we're going to go in the, I'm going to take them to the play place there. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> like what a fun uncle thing to do. So I took them, uh, you know, long story short, complete disaster. Uh, one of them was sitting up at the top crying. I tried to go up there and get her. I got stuck <laughs> in it. It was a whole thing. I think they had to shut it down because I couldn't get out of there. Yeah, I'm all for getting rid of them. <laughs> when you get older, you learn what your pet peeves are. And one of, I think it might be my number one pet peeve, is whenever I'm at a playground with my children who are like five and two, and there are kids at the playground who are like way too old. So they're like 16 or like 17, and they're like too big to be on the stuff, and they're like throwing stuff, and like they're like cussing super loud. Is it, you know, it's just like that just gets on my nerves so bad. It's like you guys can drive (laughs) get out of here jay if you and i needed to decide something like who goes first where we're going to eat etc there are a few things we could do to settle it like we could arm wrestle probably not fair since i'd beat you so fast and so easily we could play rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> I'm also, have to drive to your house one. right now. Also, <laughs> going to test this out. <laughs> we, could, we could play rock, paper, scissors. Also not a great one because we often think alike at things like this. Like we'd both go scissors first, but then we'd know that the other person would also go scissors first. So instead we'd switch to rock, but we, we would know that the other person would also think that they need to switch to rock. So we would tie both going with paper. You're also under the radar a little bit of a cheater like you'd be like no no no, i meant rock it looks like paper but it's not or you'd be like best two out of three oh best three out of five like you keep up and well, exactly so you know the, the only fair thing to do would be to flip a coin right 50 50 so if we were going to flip a coin what side you taking heads or tails this is a really thought out answer but i think in my head i'm thinking all right i'm going to call heads but then when it's in the air i'm going to say tails it's like, you know, the, the heart says tails. Yeah, I'm a tails guy myself. I usually go tails. But Jay, while the coin toss has always been considered completely fair, a true 50-50, a recent study based on one from just a few years back says otherwise. To start, Jay, meet Percy Diaconis. 
As a youngster, Diaconus found that he was extremely interested in magic tricks and probability games. In fact, after dropping out of high school, he traveled the country with a professional magician, perfecting his sleight-of-hand game along the way. After a decade of magic, Diaconus switched gears, though, using the money that he had saved from magic to pay for classes at City College in New York. After getting a few mathematics-based card tricks published in the Scientific American, he somehow found himself getting accepted as a student at Harvard. So what a journey. Jay, three years later, Diaconus earned a doctorate and joined the faculty at Stanford, and that reignited his passion for studying the game of chance. And his research on coin flips in 2007 led to a more recent one, the culmination of a four-year project by Frantisic Bartus, a PhD student at the University of Amsterdam, where Bartus went all in on further debunking that a coin flip is actually 50-50. Jay Bartis recruited 47 volunteers from six countries to, well, flip coins. Weekends, nights, even a 12-hour marathon flipping session led to the team performing 350,757 coin tosses, (laughs) destroying the previous record of a mere 40,000 child's play. (laughs) And the results found a same-side bias of 51%. Researchers determined that an airborne coin doesn't turn around its symmetrical axis. Instead, it tends to wobble off-center. So, Jay, you may think, well, 1%. That's nothing. What's the big deal? 51%. Well, going back to Diaconus, we really have two important takeaways here. One, 1% or not, it proves that a coin toss truly isn't 50-50. You and I deciding where to eat, it doesn't matter. But legit gambling efforts, it starts to kind of matter. And Diaconus told the Annenberg Learner Against All Odds podcast, what really matters the most, though, is what side of the coin faces up before the flip. Try to catch a glimpse of how it starts out, he says. Is it heads when it flips? If so, always bet heads. It's not magic, it's math. That coin has a higher probability of landing on heads at that point. And remember, probability is actually a fact based on an observer's knowledge. So there you go, Jay. It's really not 50-50. You should always bet whatever side you can see before the coin flips. Well, I guess now I'm going to have to update my life with this information. I'm going to have to always, if I ever, I can't remember the last time I've used a coin to decide anything, but I guess now I have a preference. Really? Yeah. I mean, when was the last time you used a coin? Like you, you tell me you go upstairs to your wife and be like, oh, well, uh, if this is heads, I get to watch a movie I want or whatever. And you flip, (laughs) like, you haven't done that. Well, when you say it that way, <laughs> I feel like we did it recently and it was a somewhat big thing. You'd be the guy with like the two heads on a coin. Like that'd be your party trick. You're like, hey, uh, heads, uh, heads, you give me that TV or something. You flip it. as like a joke. And they're like, oh, God, he's doing like the toy. Like, he's doing the coin thing again. I feel like it was like, what daycare were we going to send our kid to? <laughs> so a major life decision. So I think it was a major life decision. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Trout. We'll see you next week. One kid pees in there. It's in there forever. Like, you're, what, are you going to clean it all out? Are you going to take all the balls out? You're not going to do that. <laughs> I'm up, there sleep- I'm up there sleeping at Burger King. I've uh, never cleaned a <laughs> plastic ball in my life. 
According to this, this was an anonymous post from a former Chuck E. Cheese employee, so that's juicy. Uh, <laughs> that one time at Chuck E. Cheese, the balls were so nasty, like visibly nasty, that they put them in a pickup truck, like in a net in a pickup truck, and then just drove through a car wash. That's actually not a bad <laughs> idea. If that's true, that's not a bad idea. 